to remember the goodness of God in this past year and also to remember the suffering and the various other emotions over this past year that have felt so strong and so significant at the time. But looking back, we can see how they have passed away and how untrue guides they really were in the midst of them. And looking at that, we can look at God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and be comforted as we look towards this next year, both its troubles and its joys, knowing that day by day, our God will be the same. And as I was thinking on this, it just reminded me of the third stanza of the hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. This stanza ends saying, we blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree and wither and perish, but not changes thee. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord, we gather because your word is life, because you have called us out of the domain of darkness and you have united us with your son. Though we were unfit to draw near, Lord, your great love has reached down into the deep darkness, the miry pit, Lord, the places of evil, and has redeemed us out of it at the cost of your own life. We being called with such a great calling cannot help but draw near to you, Lord, to hear your word to sing your praises, and to join together with one another who have been saved by so great a Savior. Please bless my words today and bless all of our hearts that we might be transformed as we witness who you are and what you have done. Amen. So I'm going to venture a guess and assume that most of you are familiar with the number one. I would even hazard to say that most of you, even if you don't like math, can probably count that high. (laughs) But one is an important number. It's fundamental and many other things build off of it. One plus one being two and two plus one being three and so on and so forth. One also often means first the things of most importance Or to be one, number one, is to be the best or at the top of the game, like Tom Brady. (laughs) But one, while it's also important, is simple. It's an easy concept to understand. It's not like some crazy numbers out there, like a billion, where we see these videos online of people trying to show us, like, A million is this much and a billion is this huge amount, you know, if each grain of rice is a thousand dollars or whatnot. There's no videos like that that someone has made trying to explain how big one is. It's a pretty easy concept to understand. So one is an important number and it is a simple number to understand. And I'm going to ask you to put that on the back burner. It will come up later on um, because this rings true not just for the world, but in scripture as we talk about the concept of oneness. So let's begin reading the passage. And as we're reading the passage, pay attention to the usage of the word one as it repeats over and over. 
as it will help us in putting together the concepts that are being explained here. So the letter of Paul written, the letter written by Paul the Apostle from prison to the Ephesians, chapter 4, starting in verse 1 and going all the way through to verse 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is a beautiful passage, and I was deeply excited when Gary assigned me to it. Um, This idea of oneness is really amazing, and I thank you for the privilege to get to preach to you about it. Paul starts off in the first verse laying out the central idea of this section. He urges us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Lock that in your head as we go through the rest of this sermon, that the main idea is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. If you are a believer, this is the... there is a way that is fitting for you to walk and to conduct yourself. And it is fitting to the way in which you have been called. But before Paul goes into that command, he preloads the command with a reminder of who he is. It's good, a reminder. I may have forgotten who was writing this letter and if we decided to start as we did today in the middle of the book instead of at the beginning and working our way through, it's helpful that he introduces himself a bit so we don't forget. Kind of like coming in halfway through a movie. Obviously, this is not the main reason that Paul put it there. He was writing this letter to a congregation and it would have been read out all at once you know, before there was even chapters, word by word, throughout the whole thing. And there would be no confusion in the audience's mind as to who was writing it. So when he points out in the first verse, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, a prisoner for the Lord, he is not reminding the audience of who he is because he's worried that they forgot, but because he's trying to draw out special emphasis He's trying to show them his credentials. He's about to expect something of them, give them a command and urge them to behave in a certain way. So he is flashing his ID card to remind them of who he is. And as a side note, um, keep in mind when you are listening to people talk, whether it's online or out in the world, if People do not have good credentials. You should not take them with the same degree of seriousness. 
if they do not know you well, if they do not have good evidence that they believe what they are saying, you should take them far less seriously than those who know you well and you can see working out in their life the truth of what they're saying, which is part of the reason why the local body is so important. So Paul is writing to them and he is showing his credentials. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. He does this so that they may take him all the more seriously when he gives them his exhortation, when he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of his calling. He is a prisoner for Christ. There is no question that he takes what he believes seriously. There is no question that he fully believes these truths that he is peddling to the Ephesians. He is not just handing out hard truths and difficult commands, but he himself is willing to follow those commands even to the very end. And he sits there in prison on the behalf of people like the Ephesians because with boldness he traveled around the world preaching the gospel, risking his life. And because of his boldness in doing that, for the sake of people like the Ephesians, he is now in prison when he writes to them. And so the man who sits in prison with the threat of execution looming over his head is the one who is urging them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. But his credentials go further. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner of Christ, urge you. That therefore connects back to what he was saying in the previous chapter. And while we don't have time to get into all of the details of it, Paul in the previous chapter finishes by praying a beautiful, loving prayer for the Ephesians before the throne of God above, desiring to see them exist in the fullness of the knowledge of God's great love for them. And so his credentials are further established as he emphasizes that he is someone who loves them and prays for them on before the throne of God. And that person, the one who is in jail, the one who loves them and prays for them, he is the one who is urging them to conduct themselves in this way. And that's all well and good for Paul and the Ephesians, but for here us here sitting in America in the 21st century, it may not be so easy to understand what it has to do with us. Paul wasn't praying for me. He didn't even know me. Um, So why should I care that he is the one who is writing this exhortation? Well, his credentials do matter, and they do add some weight to it. But more importantly than his credentials is who Paul is being a reflection of. Paul is being a reflection of someone whose credentials are far greater and matter to us even this day in the 21st century. As he writes this, he is being a reflection, a imitator of Jesus Christ, who himself is the word made flesh and who by the Holy Spirit has written through Paul this letter. So these words that are being written are not just for the Ephesians at that point in time, 
but for the men and women who are gathered here at Sovereign Grace Chapel. And his credentials are without equal. As the Father says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Paul prays for the Ephesians before the Father's throne, but Jesus ever lives above to intercede for those who are his. Paul backs up his words with actions, but Jesus did perfectly everything that he taught us to do. Paul writes to the Ephesians while he's sitting under the threat of execution, but Jesus writes to us through Paul after having been executed in our place. This is the one who is urging us to walk in the manner worthy of our calling. He is the one who called us in the first place. So let us look at his credentials and let us take to heart the encouragement that he is giving us to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. So the rest of what we are studying today will answer two questions on this main idea that has been presented. The first question is, what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have? This is a, and then the second question is, what exactly are we called to? The passage beautifully will cover these two questions so that we can understand the fullness of this exhortation that we are being called to. This pattern of these two questions of how we are supposed to do something and why we are supposed to do it is a common pattern in scripture. And it will help you put your Bible together if you learn to recognize it. The fancy term for this pattern is imperative and indicative. Or in other words, what you should do and then why you should do it. It is imperative that you do this and that <clears throat> and this other thing indicates why that command is imperative for you. So through this pattern, we are being called to live in accordance with truth, to live in accordance with reality in a way that breaks from our own sinful fictions of what the world looks like and conforms ourselves to the true way that reality actually is, the way that God has made it and declared it to be. So imperative and indicative, what we should do and why we should do it. That's the order that this passage answers the questions, but we're going to flip it around today for the sake of clarity. So before we start to answer the question of why we should behave in a certain way, I just want to clarify one piece of language from the text as it will help us make the connection between these two ideas more easily. In the passage, we are encouraged to be eager to maintain the unity of the gospel. Unity is a word that means oneness. Hence the title of the sermon. Most words in the Bible that have uni at the start of it are talking about the number one. They're pulling from the Latin there. 
united, unify, union, uni- uh, unity, all these words that are all these words are talking about being one. This is easy to remember if you speak just a little bit of Spanish. The word for one in Spanish is uno, or if you play card games, you should get it too. So unity means oneness. And keep that in mind as we reread back through the passage to refresh ourselves to understand what he is talking about here. I therefore... A prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Then we have the imperative, how we should do this. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, the oneness of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then the indicative, why we should do this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, first point of the outline, oneness. This is, once again, the indicative This is the calling to which we were called, is to these ones of scripture, the one body, the one spirit, the one hope, and so on and so forth. This idea of the ones of scripture is not just in this passage, but it it reverberates all throughout the Bible, and it is beautiful and precious. Early on in Deuteronomy 6.4, we get what is called the Shema, where the congregation is encouraged, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In 1 Timothy 2.5, we get, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Or in Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, that's talking about Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Furthermore, in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, we get, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. But he continues to explain this concept further and says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. One of my most favorite places in the Bible where this concept of oneness is drawn out is in Jesus's high priestly prayer, which is a a beautiful prayer where he is calling us into unity with himself into oneness with himself and with each other, and then through our oneness with him into oneness with God. He says in John seventeen twenty one and 23, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the word 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is part of the reason why oneness is so beautiful. Because as a unit, we receive the blessings of Christ. We are joined with him so that when the Father looks at us, he treats us as his son because we are one with him. This is the doctrine of union with Christ, and it's one of the most beautiful and precious doctrines of Scripture. And you will see this all throughout the word. Everywhere in which you read something that says, in Christ Jesus, it is emphasizing our union with who Jesus is. And so through all these things, we start to get a taste of the oneness theme in Scripture, that God is bringing blessing by uniting us to each other and to himself in Jesus. And then... Paul will emphasize this more, drawing out the oneness concept and how we are called to it. He makes it abundantly clear for us when he says in verse 4 of Ephesians 4, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. He's tying our calling to a singular thing, to the calling that we are supposed to be walking worthily of. So to understand how we are supposed to walk worthily, first we want to understand the call to which we are to be worthy of. We are called to be part of the one body. The truth is that we are all one body. We who are trusting in Christ are all members of the same body though some of us may be a bit uglier than others. Not every part of the body is as pretty, but they're all useful and all important. We are one with each other here. We are one with the believers in Faith Baptist, and we are one with believers across the world who are trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are one body with them. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we are to be united because we are one body. Furthermore, there is one spirit. We are all made alive again. By that same spirit, the same spirit that saved me from my sins and brought me from death to life is the same spirit that dwells in you. And so we are one. We are united as a family shares blood. We share a spirit, the Holy Spirit. Be united. We share one spirit. We are called to one hope. 
This makes it abundantly clear that this isn't some sort of McDonald's faith where you get to have it your way. Where it's all about satisfying your personal desires. That heaven is is about fulfilling the things that you're specifically as an individual looking for most. Instead, we are called to the same hope. We all who are believers are laboring in the same expectation of a future promise. Seth isn't called to hoping for heavenly barbecue while I'm called to hoping for heaven's video games. We are both and we are all called to eagerly be awaiting our adoption as sons. We have one hope. Be united. We are not called to serve different lords, each with our own God or our own focus. But we are all subject of one ruler, one Lord. And so as subjects under one Lord, we should be united. We are not called to put our trust, our faith in different things. To have confidence in this or in that as each one's heart guides him. But we are called to have one faith and one trust who is Jesus Christ. And so because we all have one trust, be united. Be one. And beyond all that, Paul tops this off with a, a great praise of who God is. He says, there is one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is one father, all you who believe are his children. We are members of the one family of God. He is over us and he is in us. So we are to be united. And so we are called to be one because all of the realities that we live under as Christians are singular realities. They are oneness realities. They're not first and foremost about each individual going their own way, but about a body being together, being one. But do not confuse this. This is not uniformity in the sense that every believer is a cookie cutter or a carbon copy of each other. That we have to shave off pieces of each of ourselves until we all fit the same mold. If you know this congregation, you will surely find that there are people of all different shapes and sizes, of different personalities and histories, of various interests and aptitudes. I remember hearing uh, Dave Longo talk once about how much he appreciates how Christ brings together such different people. He used himself and myself as the example for this. Dave Longo and I are, are very different people. Dave loves sports. If you want a guy who knows facts about sports, the, the various seasons that this famous event happened and all these various things. Talk to Dave. He's your guy. Um, me, on the other hand, I could care less about sports. If all professional sports stopped tomorrow, 
my life would not change one bit. <laughs> but that's not to say I don't have my own weird ho- hobbies and likes. You know, ones that, frankly, Dave could care less about. Um, I like medieval history and fantasy novels. I like Christian metal music. But I love Dave because he's my brother in Christ. And Dave loves me. And that is, is such a beautiful thing where you have diversity in the body, but unity in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So the unity of the gospel is not the enemy of diversity, but it's actually the only place where diversity can exist. If you look out at the world, you see what happens when people try to have diversity without anything to be unified over. It is chaos and it's misery, everyone going their own way. It's like how the author of Judges sums up the actions of people in those days. He says there's no king in Israel, and so everyone does what is right in their own eyes. This is what happens when you try to have diversity without any central point for people to be unified on. And this is because being unified on the things that are most important puts everything else into its proper place. It allows us to be different from each other and to disagree with one another and yet not divide and tear each other apart. So dig into this. Be united. Because in that is when we are truly free. Being united (coughs) works itself out in many different ways. Like when I meet a believer, a fellow believer who believes in the gospel, but he also happens to think that every believer should speak in tongues. That means the fact that we are united in Christ means my main focus with this brother shouldn't be trying to convince him and sway him from his position. But I should first and foremost make sure that my conversation and conduct with that brother recognizes and glorifies the gospel that we are both believing in. And it is only from there that we get the freedom to disagree and discuss while still loving and glorifying our God. So this looks like salting our conversations and our opinions with each other and other believers that we come across in the world with the knowledge that we, what is mu- <clears throat> with the knowledge that what is most important is what we share with all other believers and that is Jesus Christ and the gospel of salvation by grace alone in Jesus alone so do not let lesser things undermine your commonality with each other and with other believers And so we are called to be one because all of our callings of believers are to oneness realities. Before I get to our final point, which is oneness in action, 
I want to talk to you who have, <clears throat> who have not been called to this oneness. See, <clears throat> some of you have not trusted in Christ. You have not been united to a body of believers and to the Lord and Savior. God deals with people as a unit. He deals with people like a nation. So there is a kingdom of people that he has called to be one and to be one with himself. And there is a kingdom of people who have chosen their own king. They have rebelled against God, chosen to oppose him. And like the Jews have cried, we have no king but Caesar. You who have not trusted in Christ, you are part of a rebellious kingdom that will one day be destroyed. While the kingdom of people that God has called to himself will get to dwell with him forever, being one with him. But the amazing thing is that while there are these two kingdoms, no one gets into the kingdom of God because they're good enough. If the way into the kingdom of God was by being righteous, it would be empty because we all started off in the camp of the rebellious people on the path of destruction. But the king himself came into the rebellious camp and at the price of his own life, he made a way for rebels to lay down their arms and draw near to him and join him in his kingdom. He is calling you to be one with his body and to be one with himself. Your creator is calling. Lay down your arms and come to him. There is so much beauty in all of this that you will never get to appreciate as long as you are apart from this oneness. So to our final point, oneness in action. This is the imperative. This is the way we are to act, how that works out. This is the way that we walk in a manner worthy of our calling worthy of the oneness that is our reality in Christ. We are exhorted to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Once again, we're going to flip the order as the last part of that series is the most important one. And all of the instructions that come before it are to explain that idea more fully. So the, the chief idea of what it looks like to walk worthily is to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So my exhortation for you is simple. Be eager to maintain our unity. See it in your heart, in your mind, in your actions as important, as precious, because it is a reflection of the precious truths 
of our salvation, of our God, and of our faith. Brothers and sisters, if we do not maintain the unity of our calling, we will divide what Christ has joined together, what Christ died to join together. Galatians 5.5 5 says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If we fail to cherish unity, we will undermine ourselves in the end because our only hope is Jesus. And from him, this unity flows out. We need to reflect with our actions what are the truly most important things in this life and in this world. See it as so worth preserving our unity that you are willing to suffer losses for the sake of our unity growing and continuing and prospering. If you have to listen to a worship song that isn't your favorite, or if a brother or sister says something that comes across slightingly, or if you have been part of a a small group that doesn't function exactly the way that you would like it to, then because of the unity of our calling, be joyfully glad to bear with those things for the sake of our unity and its precious truths. Keep in mind as you deal with believers day in and day out in your fellowship that one day you will be standing as one body with them all in heaven glorifying the one true God. And you want to do nothing that will contradict that truth that we are all looking forward to. Nothing that will fly in the face of that blessed hope. Paul adds this um, really interesting addition to the end of it. He says, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And this, once we understand it, should really soften our hearts. The bond of peace is the bond that we get by receiving peace with God and the forgiveness of our sins. There's an affection that should grow up in our hearts when we get to share with one another the mutual joy of being forgiven our sins. In the same way that soldiers fighting a battle together feel a camaraderie and a closeness. We who share the same gratitude and the same forgiveness should naturally develop a bond of peace between each other because we have experienced the same great and amazing grace. And the ones that we have around us are the ones who understand that. But then there are the ways in which to properly work out this eagerness to maintain the unity. There are ways to walk out being worthy of our calling. I think these are are best grouped into two connected pairs. We've got humility and gentleness and patience bearing with one another. The first pair being humility and gentleness. It's so important that in our conduct, we show our eagerness to be united by being humble and gentle with one another. 
by counting one another more significant than ourselves. We need to take the example of him, of Christ who humbled himself for our sake, though he had every right to demand everything. He emptied himself to come and serve us. And so we ought to surely be ready to humble ourselves and to bear gently with one another. If we are one, then my benefit, then my sister's benefit is my own benefit. And if we are one, my brother's loss is my own loss. And this mentality is part of the key to being humble. Because it allows me to look at you and say, good things happening to you, even at a cost to me, is a gain, is a win, is a victory. If we are one, I am freed to, as the, uh, as Paul, as is written in the book of Hebrews, to joyfully accept the plundering of my property for the sake of believers. And not just my property, but my life and my time. And let us also be gentle, not harsh, but kind, seeking to build one another up, to be gracious to one another, even in the midst of all of our weaknesses. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It is so key that we give careful thought, especially when a brother is in sin or some mistake, of how to be gentle, especially when they've wronged us. Because they are not some enemy that we are opposing but they are members of our same body that we want to be reconciled with. James 3 summarizes, I think, this attitude of humility and gentleness so well when it says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So as we consider this, take a a second to reflect on your own disposition, especially as you've dealt with the people of God. Are you a bitter person who easily takes offense at the things other people say? How do you respond when a brother or sister interrupts you in a Bible study? I know it's happened to me a number of times and I know I often don't respond as I should. When a fellow heir of Christ sins or make a mistake, makes a mistake, is your first response to get the hammer to chastise them back into shape? I'm not saying there's never a place for stern words, but gentleness should characterize our dealing with one another. The second pair we see of how to work out our eagerness to maintain unity is to walk with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
When you hear the word patience in the Bible, you should think of long-suffering. It's another good way to translate that word. That's easy to understand, suffering for a long time. So being patient with your fellow believers means being prepared to suffer for a long time. So follow Christ because he suffered for us. So be prepared to suffer for a long time to maintain the unity of the body. Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Peter, thinking that he's a pretty forgiving and merciful guy, gives a number that he thinks is big. He says, as many as seven times. And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times, seven times. Bear with your brothers and sisters. Forgive them. Bear with them the loads that they are carrying, even if the burden of those loads is their own sinfulness. When one member of the body hurts, the whole body should protect it and draw it close. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And love them all the while while you are doing this. Because they are your flesh. They are your body. Ephesians 5, 29 and 30 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. By doing this, we will maintain unity and so uphold our blessed oneness, which is ours in Jesus. I urge you as a sinner who is saved by grace, as a man who fails so often, and one who has been loved by God, even as you all are, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness because we know that we fall so desperately short. We ask for your strength because we know we are so desperately weak. And we rejoice in your salvation for you supply all of our needs abundantly, overflowingly in the one who died for us, Jesus Christ. Make us one with him, even as you are one with him. And allow us, Lord, as we prepare to eat this bread and to drink this cup, that we would remember our oneness with each other and our oneness with you. Amen.